be opening your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. I'm sorry, go back to 13 because we're not quite done with 13 yet. So back to 13, <coughs> down around, um, well, 13 verse 17 is where we're going to. So what's happened? What's happened since we were since we were last together studying the the tenth and final plague? Remember that the first nine plagues were admonishing or were, were admonitory. They were to admonish the people, the Egyptian people, to let the children of Israel go. Each time the people said, "Let them go. Let let us just be rid of them." Pharaoh would harden his heart. And so the tenth plague, the final plague, is a judgment plague. It's a judgment on Egypt. It's a judgment on the gods of Egypt. And it is a judgment on the house of Pharaoh and on every house that did not comply with the (coughs) preparatory things that God told the children of Israel to prepare for. Uh, Really good question last week concerning if there were those in the houses of Egypt who prepared, uh, would be considered proselytes. Um, would those people would those people then uh, be spared if they had followed God's uh, requirements? It appears that they would have been. Um, he's handing out a map today because a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is on the map, and so <clears throat> so the tenth plague has come. Moses III, his oldest son, his firstborn, was Amenitat. We have no record of him ever ascending the throne. He died prematurely. His eldest, his second eldest son, <clears throat> his second eldest son would ascend the throne after uh, Moses III. He was Amenhotep II. Um, Amenhotep II was not to be the one to take the throne. He, uh, Amenemhat was the firstborn of Pharaoh. Yet he mysteriously disappears from the record, the historical records. Nothing is known about him other than he predeceased his brother, Amenhotep II, who took the throne after his father, Moses III, died. And so if you're following through that chronology and you're a late chronology person, as I am, with the historical record in Egypt, this would be, these would be the, these would be the two, the firstborn, and the one who then eventually ascended the throne. So now, what we have in verse, beginning down to verse 14 of chapter 13, <clears throat> God repeatedly tells the people that He is going to take them out as He's done in the past. He's going to take them out with a strong hand, and that in future days. When a child asks, when your son asks, what does this mean? Verse 14, God says, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Now, as we go through this, there are going to be parallels, as we mentioned from the onset of this class, there are going to be parallels to New Testament Christianity. We're not delivered as slaves from Egypt. What are we delivered as slaves from? Slaves from sin. So these are the parallels that you're going to see as we go through this. And I'm going to point these out. Some of these may be very self-evident. Some of these uh, may be a little more obscure. 
So Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. Verse 15, God has killed the firstborn, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. We talked about that last week from the standpoint that they have all these sacred animals. They have all the sacred cows. They have all the sacred frogs. They have all these sacred animals that they worship. When the firstborn of those animals die, that really hits home for the, for the people of Egypt because God has even struck their so-called gods of Egypt. And so he struck the firstborn. And so God says, therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males, the first to open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So we see this down through time. It's always the firstborn. It shall be a mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand. And this is repeated four or five times as in the lead up to this, that God is going to lead them out with a strong hand. And so this indicates that God is going to, first of all, most importantly, God is going to take care of his people. God is going to lead them out with a strong hand. But we know the story. As God leads them out with a strong hand, they follow him without question. They do exactly what he says, and everybody lives happily ever after, right? No. Just like today. Just like for Christians today. God leads us out of sin. He leads us out with a strong hand. He delivers us from sin and death. And after we're delivered from sin and death, we never have any problems anymore because we're Christians. Now, we're, we're, on, the smooth, we're on the smooth pavement to heaven. No troubles, no problems, no temptations, no trials. No, nothing besets us, right? We wish. We wish. But at every point along the way, God takes care of his people. He took care of the children of Israel then. He takes care of us today as his children, as his adopted children. And so Pharaoh determines that all of his, all of his slave labor is gone. And he decides that he's made a bad decision. And so as the children of Israel are going out, Pharaoh is having second thoughts. How many people are we talking about? What does the Bible tell us in terms of numbers for the children of Israel that were going out of the land? What does the Bible say? 600,000 men. Doesn't mention the women. Doesn't mention the children. Doesn't mention old folks like me. Doesn't mention the cripple like me. Doesn't mention the halt and the lame and all of those who are unable to travel like that. So the guesstimates, although we're not given a solid number, the guesstimates of people going out of, out of Egypt, the house of Israel, somewhere between 2.5 and 3.5 million people. If we're doing 660,000 men, you hypothesize maybe half of them are married, if not more. One, two, maybe three children, maybe. The numbers begin to grow exponentially. Remember, in the early stages, in the early portion of the book of Exodus, we talked about the fact that the children of Israel were fruitful and multiplied. They became a great number, such that Pharaoh became scared that they were going to rise up and go with people that were to the north of them and come down and make war. So this is a substantive number of people that are going out. We've not just got... 315, we've not got 300, we, not, we not, don't have just a church full of people, we got a city full. 
And I'm not sure how many, how many cities have 2.5 to 3.5 million people, but you just start to think about some of the cities that have that population. And that's the amount of people that Moses, Aaron, and the others are going to have to lead out. And so he tells them in verse 18 of chapter 13, or in verse 17 really, don't go by the way of the Philistines. That's the short way. If you look on your map, I don't know if this pointer will work or not. Let's see if this pointer works. Nah. So you see the Nile. You've got your map there in front of you, hopefully. So you see the Nile. And next to the Nile, so let's do, let's do a little geography. Where's the Nile? Right there to the far left, that's the Nile. South and north, north and south kingdom. You remember that? North is south and south is north in Egypt. And so what's the next big body of water there that, that splits into two? What's the bottom portion, the larger portion? That's the Red Sea. The Red Sea today is, is divided into two parts. It was then and it is now. The one on the, if you consider like rabbit ears, the ear on the left is the Gulf of Suez. right? That's where the ships get trapped and block all the shipping, and we have shipping delays on products and everything when these ships get sideways in the Gulf of Suez. The other, on the right, is the one we want to focus on. That's the Gulf of Aqaba. That's the Gulf of Aqaba. But God says, I'm not going to send you the short way out of the land of Goshen. So if you go up to the Mediterranean up there, the southern coast of the Mediterranean, where the Nile meets the Mediterranean, there to the right is the land of Goshen. And God says, I'm not going to take you out by the way of the Philistines. And on your map, if you have your map in front of you, you can see he's not going to take them the short way. Because there's the promised land up there in the, the very topmost, if you go around the Mediterranean, that's the promised land up there. But he's not going to take them by the short way. The short way, in God's view, the short way is not the surest way. Okay? God is preparing his people. He's preparing them for the promised land. What's he preparing us for today? Preparing us for eternity. He's preparing us for heaven. The short way is not the surest way. God has to lead. The people had their way, what would they do? They'd zip right up there. The shortest way. Short way is not the surest way. And God's going to lead them out with a mighty hand. He's going to lead them out with a strong hand. Verse 18 of chapter 13, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea is all of that. It's the Red Sea, it's the Gulf of Suez, it's the Gulf of Aqaba. It's all referred to in, pre, in, in prehistory or in, in historic literature. as It's all the Red Sea. It's all the Red Sea. And if you see on your map, it says Red Sea. Even though it says Gulf of Aqaba, Gulf of Suez, it's all the Red Sea. He led them around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the, out of the land of Egypt. And at the end of verse 18, my, my version has equipped for battle. Someone else have something else? Whose version has the word harnessed? King James says harnessed? Okay. <clears throat> Three different interpretations of this. The harnessed means that they were girded, their loins were girded for battle. 
Um, equipped for battle is what the, uh, the English Standard Version says. There is a, there's at least one other way, but I, it's, not, it's, not one that, uh, it's not one that many scholars uh, depend on. But anyway, uh, that's just, if you see harnessed and equipped for battle, that's, kind of, that, that's what it kind of translates to there. Okay? Verse 19 says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Why? Why with all of these people? Why with all of this stuff? Why with all of this, the things that they're bringing out? Why, why, why are we taking Joseph's bones? Okay? God had made, God had promised. God had made a promise. God is faithful. What would be another reason? Put yourself in the, in the sandals of, a, of someone of the, the children of Israel. You're trudging along out of the, the land of Egypt. You've got a burden on your back. You, you may be riding in, a, you may be riding in a, a covered two-wheel ox cart. You may be doing something else. You may be herding some animals. If you're reminiscent of the Ten Commandments when they were going out, what would it do to you if you saw the bones of Joseph being carried out of the land of Egypt? What would that, what would that do for you? Especially if you were older. It was a reminder of the promise. So it's not just it's not just merely mechanical. It's an emblem. It's emblematic of God's promise. It's emblematic of his faithfulness to the people. What had they done when Joseph died? What had they done to his body? What had they done to his body? They had embalmed it. What was the purpose of embalmment in the land of Egypt? What was the purpose of embalming? Preservation for what? For the afterlife. So even at this point, the bones of Joseph prepared for eternity, prepared for resurrection, prepared for the life afterward. It was huge. It was not just merely the bones of a man being brought out. It was emblematic of God's faithfulness. It was emblematic of the resurrection. He was going to live again. And we know that he does. God has told us, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Joseph. I am the God of Jacob. Exactly. Exactly. And the people would not miss that point when they saw those bones. So that sometimes is another verse that we just read. And it just goes by and we move on with our lives. But these things have meaning. And we need to grasp that meaning. Chuck? Do you have something else? Okay. So Joseph's bones, prepared for eternity, a relic seen by all. God redeems the dead. God is faithful. Okay? They moved from Succoth. You can see that on your map. Now, all these cities that have question marks by them are, are locations that we think that's where they are. We don't know. There's been an awful lot of archaeology done in Egypt. Most of it's been done on the pharaohs. Not a lot of it's been done on the children of Israel, although there has been some done. But we say that they made their way from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, and that would be the wilderness of Shur. Okay? Verse 21, and the Lord went where? Did he go behind them? 
He went before them. God is the guide. He is the one who leads. Man does not lead. God leads. God is the guide. He went before them. What does God do for us today? Does he lead us? He leads us through his word. He leads us through, if you heard the sermon uh, last Sunday, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He leads us by his word. He leads us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What about this cloud? Pillar of cloud to lead them by day and a pillar of fire to lead them by night. Any significance to that? He spoke to them through the pillar. Yeah. Gave them light to guide them. What, is, what, is, what, what does this have, all have to do with light? God is light. In him is no darkness. We're going to see at some point that he's going to move from leading in front of them. He's going to move around behind them and he's going to block the Egyptians from being able to harm them when they get to the beach at Nehemiah. He's going to block them. He's going to block the, cho- he's going to block the children of, I- of Israel and he's going to lead them by his light through the parting of the Red Sea. Because they had to go by night. They had to travel by night. But his light led them. And if you read closely, the, ch- the children of Egypt, of the, the Pharaoh's army, was in darkness. He put them in darkness and he, said, he put them in confusion. And that's what sin does. Sin is darkness. It's confusion. And so these lessons are applicable even for us today. The light of his presence brightens and they followed him by day and they followed him by his glory at night. So, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, it did not depart from the people. Did not depart from the people. Again, God is our guide and he will not forsake us. He will not leave us. He's promised us that. And so as we move to chapter 14, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hi-Hiroth. All right, so you've got this picture. So here's the picture now of everything that, we see, that we've seen. They camped at Succoth. They made their way through the wilderness of Egypt. And now they're near a place called Pi-Hi-Hiroth. Between Migdal and the sea, in front of Bel Sephron, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. There are, in this part of the world, things called wadis, W-A-D-I, wadis. And they are very narrow paths that pass between the mountainous regions in this part of the country. And what you can see is you can see a variety of these wadis, if you will, that's those, that's those brown things that are traversing through the blue of the mountains, out to a place called Pi-Hahiroth, which means, translated to mean, mouth of the gorge. The mouth of the gorge. And if we look at this beach at Nehemiah, we see that there's only one entrance. This is the beach today. Notice there's only one entrance out onto the beach. And as they approached that beach, there was... As Pharaoh readies his armies to pursue them, they lifted up their eyes and behold, verse 10 of chapter 14, Pharaoh was marching after them and they feared greatly. 
And so as they're coming out onto this beach, some two million people crowding onto this beach, they're trapped. There's no way for them to go back. There's no way to go to the left or to the right because, as you can see, there's no more, there are no more entrances. There's only one entrance. This is the mouth of the gorge. They've come down through that narrow inlet, through that narrow wadi, and they're now out on the beach. And what do they do? These same people that have just left Egyptian captivity now throw Moses and everybody else under the bus. Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? Verse 11 of chapter 14. What was God doing at this point in time? What was he doing to these people at this point in time? He was testing their faith. Does your faith ever get tested? Do you ever go through trials and tribulation? Is your faith ever tested? This is what he was doing to the children of Israel. God was their guide. God was leading them. Why would they, why would they be afraid? Because they're human. And they saw that there was no way out. But with God, there's always a way out. For us today, as for them. Why does God test our faith? Why does God test our faith? James 1, verse 3, is the answer. Why does God test our faith? He tests our faith to, I'm sorry? Produce, produce patience. That's the end product. These people were very impatient. They were trapped. Have you ever been trapped? Have you been trapped in a situation where you don't know what you're going to do? But as a child of God, fear should be the last thing that comes into your mind. Quiet resolve. Quiet resolution. And so in chapter 14, we see we see a series of stages. And if you will, as we break this down, as God tries their faith, verses 1 through 4, they're desperate. And they're dependent. In, in verses 5 through 9, there's a determination made. In verses 10 through 29, there's destruction and deliverance. And finally, in verses 30 through 31, there's dedication. Why does God try our faith? He tries our faith to improve our moral standing, for moral improvement. What would have happened to the children of Israel if these two million folks had just been able to leave Egypt and go straight to the promised land? No trial, no tribulation, no, no wars, no battles, no, no, no th- anything that pushes back against their sense of, of comfort. Yeah. They could see their destruction coming. And so... Sometimes, not today, but sometimes in the Bible, God uses coming destruction as a way to get his people to wake up. We have warnings in the New Testament. Wake up. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. Today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Oh, my, that sounds familiar. Today, 
Why does he try our faith? He tries our faith for his glory. For his glory. And we must always remember that God tries our faith because, because his ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Don't try to figure out why God is doing what he's doing. Just have faith and, and move along. Don't question. Just do, what, just do what God wants you to do. But he said many times in chapter 13 and in other, way, in, in other places in, in the early part of Exodus that Egypt must come to a realization that I am God. Egypt must come to that realization. They must come to the realization that God is Lord. He is Jehovah. He is the one almighty God. They must come to that realization. And the children of Israel must come to realize their dependence on God. Can you do this? Can, can you go through this life on your own? By yourself? A lot of people outside these doors think they can. A lot of people outside these doors that are doing things other than coming to worship God in spirit and in truth today think that they don't have to depend on God. God's kind of like a, a, a parachute. I jump out of a plane. If I get in trouble, I'm going to pull my chute and God's going to come and save me. There's a daily dependence on God that the Christian needs. You have to depend on him when times are good because you will, you will need to depend on him when times are bad. It's like Chuck said, when things are going good, eh, things are going too good. I'm, I'm just going to lay about. I'm not going to do anything. But when times are bad, when, things get, when, the, when the going gets rough, and we reach out to God. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. We need to, we need to know that we can depend on, on God. These people, these people had seen the plagues. They had seen the results of the plagues. They were not this far removed from this generation. It was not that far removed. It had been weeks, months, maybe a little bit longer, but certainly not a very long time since they had seen the plagues. They would seen what God could do. What does the Bible define as faith? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence, things not seen. That's what we have to go on today. We can only read about the plagues. These people witnessed them firsthand. These people witnessed a column of, of fire at night and a column of, uh, of cloud by day, and yet they're and yet they're gonna they're gonna question Moses about this. They're gonna murmur, and this isn't the first time they're gonna murmur. Let me tell you, this is a murmuring bunch. And the sin of murmuring is a sin that still befalls all of us today. The sin of murmuring. And it should not be so. These people had seen the plagues. They'd seen the after effects of the plagues. They had seen God's deliverance. And that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for them. Well, and later on we're going to get to the point where God's going to say, I'm going to come down and speak to the people. And the people said, we don't want to hear him. We don't want to, We want to hear God's voice. So there's a, there's a certain amount of reverence when God is on the scene, but when God goes away, you think God's not watching anymore, and you'd be wrong. God sees everything you do, little hands, what you do, little mouth, what you say. And so they'd seen the plagues and they'd survived, yet they still murmured without excuse. 
without excuse. What can we learn from this? Well, they're going to be given a covenant. They're going to have a covenant relationship with God. The Hebrew writer tells us we have a better covenant. We have a better covenant than they had. So the question arises, what does faith in God do for us? What does faith in God do for us? Gives us a quiet confidence. Look what Moses says in verse 13. Fear not. Stand still. But then in the next verse he says, or in the next verse God says, move forward. Verse 15. Move forward. Well, God, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to stand still or do you want us to move forward? No, I want you to stand still and watch what I do. And once you've seen what I can do, you move forward. You take action. For the Christian today, God tells us to stand still. Be quiet and know that I am God. His ways are not your ways. Stand still. But at the same time, God says, move forward. Don't stay in one spot. Move forward. And that moving forward, that quiet confidence, that standing still, that moving forward in faith gives us that freedom from panic. It gives us that freedom from fear. It gives us that freedom from disquiet in our lives. It gives us a freedom from being scared to death. I don't know how many people you talk to during the week, but people I talk to, especially in a hospital setting where I work, we talk a lot about death. And I've spent most of my life being very up close and personal with people who are dead, with people who are dying. And there's a fear. There's a disquiet that comes with that. And that is something that a Christian should never have. Stand still, be quiet, and know that I am God. It gives us an assurance by helping us trust in God. We trust in him. We're able to move forward. We have a moving faith. We're not stagnant. We're not staying in one place. We're ever moving forward. It gives us cheer, and it makes us hopeful. Faith in God is a faith that will be for the Christian rewarded eternally. Hebrews 11.29, remember, says, by faith, by faith. All of these things happened by faith. So we know what happens. Moses lifts up his staff, the the waters part, and the people go through on dry land. As a side note, I did not put it in here, but the area just beside that encampment that you see in this picture up here, in the Gulf of Aqaba, the water is the shallowest that it is anywhere else. It's the shallowest in that crossing between there and crossing over to the land of Midian or to uh, Arabia, Saudi Arabia. Okay, I didn't I didn't put that graphic up there, but that, that's a graphic that I've seen. There is a there is a stele, S-T-E-L-E. There's a stele that's mounted here, and it is believed that Solomon put that there when he brought his navies down to. Um, I believe it was either Elath or Isaiah and Gibar. You can see that right at the top of the Gulf of Aqaba. If you go to 1 Samuel, you'll, you read about his navy. 
He brought his navy down and put his navy into the waters here in the Gulf of Aqaba. And we think it's possibly about this time that he put this stele up. There was a stele on the Saudi Arabian side, but it has since been removed because the Muslims, and that's a Muslim nation. This is, a, this is a stele that was put there, and it's been dated to the time of Solomon. We think that Solomon put it there. I don't know. I don't know if this is where they crossed. This is where some scholars today say that th- this is where they crossed. I don't know. This is, this is just a best guess. It makes sense. It follows the Bible. It follows the Bible point by point. Um, there are some that say if you look at the bottom, well, it goes off the map. If you go down to the, the very bottom of the land of Midian, there's a very narrow area there right at the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba. Some people say that's the crossing. I don't know. I just know that they crossed on dry land and that the pillar separated itself from them and went behind them and blocked the Egyptians from being able to come out onto that onto that narrow area of that the mouth there of the of the gorge would have been where the pillar would have blocked them and kept them from coming until the children of Israel were across or safely most of the way across. Then the angel of God, verse 19 of chapter 14, then the angel of God was going before the host of moved and went behind them. And the pillar of God moved from before them and stood behind them. Smoke and fire, darkness and light, darkness to the foe, light to the friend. Look at the 77th Psalm, 77th Psalm, especially verses 16 through 18, talks about, David talks about this. For God's own, for his chosen, in the day of battle, or in the day of trouble, God's path of light provides safety and escape. So too for the Christian today. But to God's foes, darkness, confusion, and a realization, a realization too late, in verse 25, a realization too late, clogging the chariot wheels so that they drove them heavily, and the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for who? The Lord fights for them against us. Realization had come home. God was fighting for the children of Israel and fighting against the Egyptians. And their doom was certain. Oh, they attempted to flee. You know, it's interesting today that people can flee to God, but no one can flee from God. The Egyptians could not flee from God. Because he fought for the children of Israel that day. And he fights for us when we flee to him. What does the book of Revelation say in the last day? They'll say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us. You can't flee from God. They are overwhelmed. They are overwhelmed with destruction. And as the Egyptians fled into the waters, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them. So shall it be in the day of judgment. Not one will remain. Notice here that it does not say anything about Pharaoh. 
says that the, the host of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not a part of this, apparently, from all the reading that I can, that I can see. Took Moses ruled for 52 years. He ruled during this period of time. We have his, we have his mummy. We have his sarcophagus. We have his, the treasures from the Valley of the Kings for Moses III. His whole host was destroyed. But the children of Israel walked on dry land, the waters being a wall on them. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10.1? The children of Israel were what? 1 Corinthians 10 and 1. The children of Israel were baptized in the water. They were baptized by the cloud and they were baptized in the sea. The like figure, baptism, doth also now save us. The comparisons are inescapable. They were protected by God's hand, the waters being a wall to them on the left and the right hand. In verse 30 and 31, look at the result. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. How long will that last? How long will that last? Oh, it's going to last about, what do we got? Chapter 15, going to last about, uh, oh, 21 verses. That's about how long it's going to last. It's going to last about 21 verses. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the Song of Moses. Um, if you're studying, if, you, if you're getting, if you're watching Hiram's class on the book of Revelation, he's going to get to where they sing the Song of Moses and what? Moses and the Lamb. We could spend probably two or three sessions on, this, on Miriam's Song of Moses. I'm going to leave it to you to study. If you have questions about it, well, that's, that's one thing. But we're going to move ahead. Sure, that's what they that's what they realized, albeit too late. Yeah, yeah. But subsequent to their but subsequent to their deliverance, they sing this song. And throughout this song of Moses, there is reference to the fact that God will reign. He will reign forever and ever. He, he you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Look at the look at the the words that they're saying. And then look down at verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And all they find is bitter water. And in verse 24 for the first time, well for the second time now, what do the people do? My, my, my version says they grumbled. They murmured. They complained. They cried to the Lord and the Lord showed them a log and he threw it into the water and the bitter water became sweet. We probably could talk for... 15 or 20 minutes on the the difference between bitter water and sweet water and the implications of that, all that we've talked about in the Bible. There was all before God in this song uh, that Miriam sang. There's all before God. There's fear. Their faith is strengthened. They've been delivered. There's a spirit of obedience that plays out in in this song. They've been delivered. They've been baptized in the cloud and in the sea, 1 Corinthians 10, 1. They exalt God, they praise God, they rejoice in God. 
And now in verse 22, down through the end of the chapter, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, maybe a day or two later, maybe a week later, now they're grumbling. Now they're complaining. What does the Bible say about grumbling and complaining in the New Testament? Is that a sin? Is that a sin? It comes pretty close. What is grumbling? <clears throat> what is grumbling, complaining, murmuring? What do all those things? What do all those things have implicitly tied in them for the Christian? If you're a grumbler, a murmur, a complainer, what is it? What, what does it fundamentally say about you as a Christian? Lack of faith. No patience. You've been, you've been tested, you've been tried, you failed the test, and so you're just going to grumble now. You're just going to murmur. I've noticed something among, and there are young people in, in the audience this morning, I, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I've noticed, I, I've noticed a severe penchant for young people today to blame everybody but themselves. Oh, it's so-and-so's fault. Oh, it's this or that. It's, it, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not responsible for that. Well, yes, you are. You're responsible to God for your actions. You'll give answer to God for your actions. It's a sad truth. Psalm 107. Again, another psalm reference for, uh, for this whole thing. Psalm 107, verses 5 through 9, uh, talk about uh, the deliverance of the children with David. I'm talking about that. And so at the end of the chapter, the bitter waters are made sweet. The, God, the, Lord, the Lord ends the chapter with an admonition, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord and do what is right in his eyes. You have to do what's right in his eyes, not do what's right in your eyes. That's the problem in Joshua, and that's the problem in Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And there's a sad realization that everyone in this auditorium has probably already come to. It ain't about you. It ain't about you. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's what got him into trouble. That's what caused all the problems. They didn't do what was right in God's eyes. And he even tells us. Okay, so next week, manna. And we're going to talk about the years, uh, because I, I gave you that assignment a couple weeks ago, um, between Galatians 3.17 and Exodus 12, to talk about the difference in the dates. How, how does that happen? Is that, a, is that a contradiction in the Bible? How can we... How can, we, uh, how can we rectify that? So we'll talk about that next week, good Lord willing.